Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. We have two readings today, one from page 451 in the Old Testament. Sorry, 251. No, 451. 451. My version's got different page numbers. 451 in the Old Testament, Psalm 8, and then 1001 in uh, the New Testament, which is Hebrews chapter 2. So, we're at Psalm 8, first of all. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas." O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And then in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified elsewhere or somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. I suppose there is nothing more sad than to perhaps meet someone you knew in their youth, and now in their middle age, or perhaps even in their old age, uh, who in their youth had so much potential or promise, but who in the outworking of their lives and the choices they've made, decisions that they've made in the course that they've taken in their life, have not managed to achieve all that people imagined and dreamed that they would when they were young. Maybe you feel that about yourself. Maybe you're conscious of that, about people you know, people who were in the same class at school or or college, people with whom you once worked. Everyone thought they would achieve great things, and in their outworking of their career, it hasn't, it hasn't added up to that at all. Well, whatever we can say about individual people we know, and perhaps what we might even bemoan about ourselves, this one reality strikes us. Wherever we look in the world, where whatever circumstances we may view in the world, all of the problems that we face as human beings, all of 
the issues that are constantly bombarding us. If you're on Facebook, for example, having to, having to work out what's fake news from true news has become a nightmare scenario. But even if we got the true news, the true news is bad enough. The fake news just makes it all seem worse. But the reality is, the sad reality is that the basic problem of humanity is humanity itself. The biggest problem facing men today is man, man himself, to use it in its most genetic form. Humans create the problems. We've done it with nature. We've done it with the animal kingdom. We do it with one another. We do it in between the nations. We have made a mess of everything. All our potential, all of our promise has been squandered as a race for a whole host of reasons. Uh, we were watching La La Land last night. Good preparation for the Sabbath day. And the, the main character, the main character as he's reflecting on Tinseltown, this won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, as he's reflecting on Tinseltown, on Hollywood, he makes this passing comment, brilliant comment. They will worship everything and value nothing. Worship everything, value nothing. And in many ways, that sums up, doesn't it, the human story. We will run after every fad, run after every idea, run after every philosophy, run after money and things and so on, but we don't value anything. So here we are, human beings, with so much promise, and we've squandered the promise that we came into the world with. Well, this, is, this idea is, is found here in the passage that we read from Hebrews, in that expression that you'll see in verse 6 there, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is asking a question of God. What do you see in humanity? Here is humanity, the one creature that God made, of which God said, unlike what He said about everything else He'd made that it was good, 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 He says of humanity, when He makes man in His image, that man is very good. Man, male and female, made in the image of God, very, very good. And we think, where is it all gone? It's evaporated. The problem of humanity is the problem of humans. Well, the author is now addressing this, and he's bringing what has been a very elevated uh, sense of teaching up to this point. He's now bringing this down closer to us, closer to our level, so that we can get our heads around what is going on. There are, in fact, two great sets of Bible quotations, and you can see that just by glancing down. You have to read it, just glance down, and you can see where the various quotations are in chapter 1, where he's talking about the Son who is God and Lord, uh, Jehovah and Adonai, two of the, the great words uh, used of God, who has the throne of God, who comes from God, who is God, and who is heir to everything that there is 
in God as well as outside of God. It talks about the Son. Very complex, very amazing. Everything you can say about God, you can say about the Son there in that first section. And then in the second chapter, he's now going to talk about someone else, apparently. He's now going to talk about a human being. It's a human being that is in mind. That's stressed in that verse 6. Two phrases, both of which refer to a human being, man-ish on the one hand, and son of man, Ben-Adam, son of Adam, on the other. Both references to humanity, to people, to someone, and to others like you and I. And the reason he talks about humanity is given in verse 5, because he's been contrasting up to this point where humans are, where creatures like us humans are, in relation to God. And he's used as the measure, measure, the measuring stick, the angels. Now, angels are creatures too. They are, they are the highest, the, the best of all the things that God made in terms of their powers and abilities and so on. And their status is the measure of all other status. Above the angels is God, and beneath the angels is everything else. And so, having talked about the angels, he is now moving to talk about what he's described as our great salvation, or the salvation that Jesus' people will inherit in chapter 1. And he describes that great subject here as the world to come. He's pointing us forward to the forever future that God has prepared and planned for His people. The forever future that began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The forever future, the new creation that will eventually bring a new heavens and a new earth and resurrection bodies, the end of death and the defeat of evil and sin and everything else in the world. The brand new thing that God is doing. The things, the world to come which is broken into our world by the work of Christ and so on. Now, he's saying this, and he says in verse 5, do you notice, it was not to the angels that God subjected this forever future, this world to come. It was never God's intention that this forever future would be His gift to the angels, rather it was God's intention to give that forever future to humans, to human beings like you and I, to elevate human beings ultimately above the angels. Now, that was the purpose and plan of God. He says that in verse 5. And he reminds us of it. He's already said that in verses 1 to 4 when he was speaking about the danger of of hearing this great teaching but ignoring it, hearing this great teacher teaching but neglecting it. And he warns us in those verses 1 to 4 of the dangers of doing that because as human beings, we have a stake in this salvation. This is what we need, and this was prepared and planned and provided for us. And if we neglect it, we neglect ourselves and our eternal destiny. If we ignore it, 
we ignore our own needs and our own ultimate future. Salvation is absolutely vital for humans. It was provided for us so that we might enjoy that forever future with God. So he he reminds us again, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. And then he quotes from this great Psalm 8 that we have read together. Now, wherever in the Bible, and especially in books like Hebrews, you find a quotation from what we call the Old Testament, the early Christian writers are imitating the practice of the rabbis who would, in their teaching, make an allusion to or take a quotation from the Old Testament, and on the assumption that their their students would go and read the whole passage because the quotation that they took was not taken in isolation. They weren't just using words that fitted their intention, but rather they were taking out of that original passage something that that original passage was teaching. And here, the the writer is doing the same. He he intends you to go back and see the context of Psalm 8, and that's what we're going to do now as we as we go on together. And the psalm, we notice, begins with a beautiful, praise-filled hymn to the wonders of God's exaltation and God's glory. It begins with a celebration of God's name. O Jehovah, our Adonai. O Lord, uppercase letters. Our Lord, lowercase letters. How majestic is your name, in all the earth. In the New Testament, the same word is used for both words, Lord. So, the song starts with glory, and then at the very end of the psalm, you find a repetition of the same words. O Jehovah, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And as you read the psalm, there is something hauntingly familiar about that way of laying out the truth. Glory at the beginning, glory at the end. The majesty of God at the beginning, the majesty of God and His rule at the end. Uh, bracketing everything else that comes between. And, and as, I, as I read that, and as I see that very obvious framework and structure, it reminds me of what we've been learning in John's Gospel on Sunday evenings, when our Lord Jesus, for example, on the night He was betrayed, had His his own people with him. There in the upper room, John 13 says, that uh, before he got up from his place and then took off his outer garment and then wrapped around his waist the towel of the servant or slave and poured water out into a basin and got down on his knees and began to wash his disciples' feet. Before he did that, we're told Jesus knew that He had come from God and was returning to God. That was at the beginning of the evening, John 13. At the end of the evening, John 17, quite crucially, as Jesus prays for the future, He comes to the Father first of all, and He prays for Himself, and He says to the Father, Father, glorify Your Son with the glory He had with You before the world began, come from God, returning to God, had the glory, and glory again. That that kind of pattern then is reflected in the eighth psalm. 
And it's what happens in between that is the focus of the writer's intention here uh, as he draws our attention to what it says there. Because if you have in the back of your mind what Jesus did in the upper room when knowing that He had come from God, He took off, off His outer garments, put on the badge of a slave, got down on His knees and washed, purified His disciples before they ate food together, uh, as a Jewish family normally would do, then you will see striking analogies. You see, there's one problem that we noted in passing in chapter 1, that, that again comes to the fore here in this little section and with this quotation from Psalm 8. And it was that there in chapter 1, we find Jesus described, in, or, or, or the Son of God described in His, in His glory as the one who is the God who ru has ruled on His throne from all eternity. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That was the way it was, has always been that the Son as God has reigned forever and forever. And yet, when we came down to verse 10 of chapter 1, we hear the writer quoting from Psalm 110, and God saying to another, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we ask the question, what has happened here? The one who has reigned forever and ever and ever has to be told to come and sit down at his Father's side. And we glanced again at Hebrews 1, and we reminded ourselves that there is a statement in verse, in verse 4 that the Son made purification for sins and then sat down. Just like Jesus in the upper room left His place down on his knees, put on the badge of a servant, and washed, purified his people's feet, and then returned to his place again. We read in chapter 1 of Hebrews that when the Son had made purification for sins, he sat down. This is telling us something about why the Son came into the world. He came to deal with sin. He came to wash us and clean us up so that we were ready to be reconnected to God, and not only reconnected to God, but reconstituted not simply as God's servants, but as His children. That was a great purpose for which He came. Well, back to our passage. Here in this passage, we have this great description of the eternal majesty of the God of Israel. The psalmist sings, prays, oh, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God tells us about the identity of God. And in the psalm, the identity of this God is that He made everything and that He rules everything. That's what it means to be God. That's why when we were looking at chapter 1 and we found that these very same things are said of the Lord Jesus, and in fact the same language is used of the Lord Jesus, you, Adonai, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And again, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We saw that the Lord, that the Lord, the Son, shares the very nature of the eternal majesty of the God 
of Israel. And everything, we're told, everything is under, is, is under Him. His name is majestic in all the earth, whether people recognize it or not, bow to it or not, acknowledge it or not. And the psalmist also talks about the throne of God or the glory of God. Sometimes the word glory is a substitute for the word throne. Uh, Often in the Old Testament, you have set your glory above the heavens, and we remind ourselves of those words of Jesus. Father, glorify your Son with the glory I had with you before the world began. We saw it in uh, Back in chapter 1, where Psalm 103 is quoted, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens. So, one feature of heaven is that God alone reigns and that Jesus has the identity of the God of Israel. His throne is in the heights. The spatial superiority of God's throne above the angels indicates God's unique transcendence over all created reality. Even those glorious beings of the heavens that might be mistaken for gods, but in reality are created beings, are subject to the one and only God's rule. So, you see, when Jesus refers to the glory He had with the Father, He is echoing language you find here in Psalm 8. You've set your glory above the heavens. Jesus says, I shared the glory of God before the foundation of the world. Now, that helps us then understand the quotation, the part of that psalm that is quoted here in Hebrews 2. So, from the, from the eternal majesty of the God of Israel, we come to the temporary humiliation of the Son of God. When we read those words, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? What the author is reminding us is what he's talking about here is real and genuine humanity. When the question is asked, why do you even spare a thought for people? After all, look at the trouble they cause. Look at the trouble, that the mess they've made of the world that you've given to them. And yet the psalm is very clear with this repeated reminder that he's talking about a human being. And it's not humanity in general, however, because verse 7 says this, you made him, him, one human being is isolated from all the others, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now, we were created lower than the angels, but this human being was made a little lower than the angels. There was a time when he was above the angels, but he's made lower than the angels. This cannot be said of any other human being except the one described in chapter 1 as the Son of God. And yet, we're, again, we're, being, we're having it emphasized. This is, this is humanity. By being made a little while lower than the angels, He is found in our humanity. Found in our humanity. That's fundamental to understanding what is going on here. Here is a particular man. That's the emphasis there in verse 7. You made him, this particular human being, this particular son of Adam, son of man. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
Now, whether the author means us to pick up the idea, the idea of this usage of this phrase, son of man, it's not used very often outside the Gospels in the New Testament. It comes from Daniel, I think, principally, but here it comes from Psalm 8. It refers to a human, but in Daniel 7, it refers to a human who is regarded as God and given all the dignity of God and is given a kingdom by God. And here, this human being is going to be crowned with glory and honor. So, there's some kind of connection there. Uh, This particular man, this particular son of Adam, had glory and honor to begin with and will be crowned with glory and honor in the end. The psalm, in other words, has a future focus. It's pointing us forward to think about this one who is to come. Interestingly, these two words for humanity that are used here are used twice in the introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 are are the introduction of the Psalter to the rest of the Psalter. In Psalm 1, we read about the perfect man who walks in the way of the Lord and does the will of God and prospers. In Psalm 2, we read about the Son of Man who is the eternal Son of God and who becomes a human king because He's anointed or messiahed by God, Christed by God. And both of those words used here point us again to that particular man, that future man who is going to come. But what does it say about that man, this man who is the focus, this son of Adam? It says that he was for a little while made lower than the heavenly beings. For a little while. That's the meaning, by the way, in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And that's the translation used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which the writer quotes here. He who is majestic, who shares the very nature of the God of Israel, whose glory fills the universe, whose majesty is highly exalted over all things. This one is made a little lower than the angels. We have to get our heads around the level of humiliation that is involved here. He who is above all creaturely reality, He who is the Creator of all things. He who sustains all things by His powerful Word. Without leaving that, without ever stopping holding everything there is together and being the glue that holds the universe together by His Word, without ever ceasing to be God, puts on a towel humbles himself in the humanity of one human individual. And do you see that he is named for the very first time in this book, in verse 9? Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That is his human name. Jesus of Nazareth. If you walked into a, into a Mexican town and you called out for Jesus, there'd probably be a thousand young guys come out wanting to play soccer with you. If you walked into Nazareth and, and you shouted, Yeshua, there'd probably be lots of little boys running around you uh, wanting to do whatever, 
play whatever, cricket, uh, or whatever they played back then. It was a very common name, but this was the only little Yeshua whose name was given to him by God to describe what he'd come into the world to do. He came to be the Savior of the world. But he was a true humanity. He was a real infant. He was in the womb of his mother. He was born by natural means, by the way. It was a supernatural conception, but it was an absolutely normal birth. And despite what we hear, crying would be made. He was totally human. As a little boy, he'd play with other little boys. He grew in wisdom and stature, we're told. His understanding grew quickly. He was, by, by a fairly young age, he was already grappling with theological realities and, and, uh, and showed his wisdom, but he, he kept incognito for many, many years, working at an ordinary little job there in Nazareth before he burst onto the scene and announced the kingdom of God. Here is this man, this man who has come into the world to be the second and last Adam, the last representative man who by his actions on our behalf can declare the, 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 the destiny of countless people. John Henry Newman captures it like this, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. This one came into the world, in our place, as one of us. And what did He come to do? Do you notice it tells us that later on in verse 9? He, he was made lower than the angels and eventually crowned with glory and honor because of what He came to do. He came to experience the suffering of death. He took on our humanity in order that He might be mortal. He took on our humanity so that He might be exposed to the viruses and the sicknesses and the illnesses of men and women. He took on our humanity so that He might be exposed to the, the punches and the brutality of Roman soldiers. He took on our humanity so that He might bear those nails in His hands and feet and that spear in His side and that crown of thorns on His head. He took our humanity for the suffering that led to death and death itself. He took our humanity so that He might become so much one of us that He could live and breathe and think and act and speak and obey God as one of us in our place. And He came in our humanity so that He might offer Himself as a sacrifice to make purification for sin, that He could offer Himself as one who would stand in your place and mine and be punished in our place. That's the language that's used here. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for, in the place of, on behalf of, as a substitute for all the others. That's the flow of the passage. This is why he has come into the world. This is the purpose 
for his being made a little lower than than the angels, that he might take on our humanity, that he might bear our sin, and that he might bear our sins to Calvary and suffer for them there. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. This is what Paul's getting at in that great uh, Christ hymn that he tells when he speaks about the one who is by very nature God, who is equal with God as well as co-eternal and co-essential, sharing the same nature as God. And it says, he humbled himself, not by what he gave up, but by what he took on. He took on the form of a servant. You have that image of Jesus getting up from his place and taking off his outer garment and putting on the towel of the slave and getting down on his knees to wash their feet. So, says Paul, he got up from his place, as it were. And without ceasing to be God, he takes on humanity. He takes on the form of a servant. He's found in fashion as a man. And he humbles himself and is obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The most shameful death imaginable under the curse of God in the Jewish law. He takes that on himself. He bears He bears, as Psalm 2 says, the rage of the nations, the people joining together and plotting in vain and taking counsel together against the Lord and His Messiah. He bears all of that in Himself for His people, for you, His people. The humiliation. And it is after the humiliation then that Jesus... That is, the man, Christ Jesus, is exalted, crowned with glory and honor. The highest place that heaven affords is His by sovereign right. And He takes His place as the man. When John sees the glory of God in heaven in chapter 4 of Revelation, It's followed up in chapter 5 by John seeing the Lamb as if it had just been slain, coming to assume the throne of God, not to make two gods, but to demonstrate that the one God in the person of the suffering Lamb, the man Jesus, occupies the throne of heaven. Why did he do this? Well, I've said it's because of the purposes of redemption, but also it's because of those purposes of revelation. The Bible's absolutely clear. You cannot see God. Creatures cannot see God. Why? Because God is invisible. God is a spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are one spirit. They are invisible. They're immaterial. They're not made up of matter. Our confession says that God is without body, immaterial, without body parts, no parts, no bits. The three, the three persons of the Trinity are not three people. And passions. Unlike you and I, we're we're susceptible to influences and pressures of one kind or another, good or bad, that make us change our mind or change our 
heart. And although the Bible uses that language sometimes of God, it's using that language to talk baby talk to us. That's the way it looks to us. But it reminds us again and again and again and again, the Lord changes not His compassions. They fail not. So how are we going to see God? God has taken on our humanity so that on that day we see God, we will see something that is familiar to us and does not scare us. We will see the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, who could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And on that day we will see him transfigured, his physical body transfigured, glorified. And the amazing thing is that that glory will irradiate us as well, and our resurrection bodies will be glorified like his. We will have a body of glory like the risen and exalted Son, Jesus' body of glory. We will be like Him when we see Him as He is. We will be changed. What is mortal will put on immortality. And we shall be changed. Isn't that a glorious thing? This great Lord of glory should take on to Himself our humanity so that we will one day know Him, see Him, touch Him, hear Him, be embraced by Him. And that He took that humanity on so that He might taste death. That is, that He might drink up that cup of the judgment of God. Drink it up till there was nothing left for the sake of His people. My prayer for you this morning is that you would see this Jesus by faith and that you would make him your own Jesus. Make him your own Jesus. I knew a lady very briefly in Northern Ireland, or I knew of a lady, should I say. And as a little girl, she was baptized by the famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And all she could remember was being taken on the knee of this gentleman in front of the whole church and him saying to her these words, So dear, you love my Lord Jesus too. And she said yes. And you know, there's lots of stuff you could talk about and lots of things you could say, and some of you would like to give us dissertations, but the only thing that warms our hearts and the thing for which we pray for you is that you're able to say to us that you love our Lord Jesus too. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that Spirit that so went with and dwelt within the Lord Jesus during his earthly life, that he overcame the devil by him and he spoke by his power and he 
healed by his power and was sustained in suffering by his power, that same Holy Spirit would come to us and open our eyes to hear, to see, and our ears to hear, and turn our hearts towards you that we might rest in him, Jesus, as our Savior. We pray in his strong name. Amen.